Joe's could hit the ball great. Uh, sure, uh, you can only dream about, you know. Uh, Joe's hit a ball that day from, I don't know, 20, 25 yards, and it never rose anything other than about six inches off the ground. So every day she's kind of went, wow, <laughs> you know, it was the best, best goal I've ever seen. Joe's got a, a few good goals, but I'm sure it's the in a 13-year Kilmarnock career of nearly 400 games, George Maxwell was a ubiquitous and tenacious presence, be it in midfield or defence. In the final episode of the Killy Histories Big Match Series 3, George talks about some famous wins, and one in particular, the 1979 Premier Division match against Celtic. Kilmarnock, looking to make it a full year unbeaten at Rugby Park, had made an impressive start to their Premier League return. Five wins and a draw in the first six matches. I'm Gordon Gillen, and this is George Maxwell's Big Match. You played yeah. in teams that won matches against the top teams in the country, and you played at Hamden. Why is it then that you've chosen the Premier Division match against Celtic in 1979 as your big match? Well, one of the biggest matches, of course, was the Cup game. We were in a lower division, and that was unheard of. In fact, I think it was the first time Celtic had lost to a team from a lower division in their history. And, of course, we had beaten them. It was quite an emotional night. It was a midweek games at Rugby Park under the floodlights were tremendous. People talk about European nights at all of the ground Celtic Rangers, and I can understand that because midweek games under the floodlights at Rugby Park were to us like a bit like that, obviously more the scale, but they were really good nights. We were a force to be reckoned with at Rugby Park. The Alec Ferguson's and all sorts didn't like coming. The players liked coming because the pitch was so good, but they always knew if they came to Rugby Park they were in for a difficult game. And midweek games in particular, I would get, I've never ever looked at stats, but I bet you the midweek stats for games at Rugby Park would be quite high. But anyway, that's another story. Um, so Paul Clark stole that story. <laughs> so I had to tell him about that, maybe in the slightly older than him, not much, but a wee bit. He poached that one. And then I thought, you know, in 79, it was, gosh, I'm saying like a politician. It was the second phase and we had another really good side. We'd been playing well. We had a good team. And when we beat Celtic that day, we really did beat them. We didn't have to hang on. We were just better than them. Their midfield at that time would be pretty good. Tommy Burns, I'm sure, I played against him. Murder McLeod. I can't think who the third one was. But anyway, and we dominated them. And that's what pleased me more. That it was 2-0, but it was never we were hanging on. I felt we were just up for it. We were better than them. The following week, we went to Hibs and took a draw at Easter Road. Again, that was... A good result going to places like Pencastle, Easter Road, Pitodry, difficult places to go. But we went and we got a draw and we beat Rangers that season. You could say a top side. We were a good side that could hold our own with the very best. And of course, by that time, we would be all part timers. So that in itself was quite 
an achievement, if you like, that here were we, the part-timers, playing against the full-time sides and doing well and doing better than well on many occasions. So that and it's, that's why I probably chose that. Can I remember much about the game? Not an awful lot, but I just know, I remember that we, we were on top of them and we never felt really that we might lose. George, playing in the midfield against, you're talking Murdo McLeod, Tommy Burns, what particular challenges and how would you prepare for facing players like that? I think you just, well, there's an arrogance to say, you, you said, and I've touched on this with you before, that Kilmarnock were a big side. We, we, when I started, I'm, I'm going back, but all through that period of time, Kilmarnock were a force in the country, I feel like. We were a big side. We were reckoned to be good, so we never felt inferior to any of these guys. And when we went out onto the pitch, basically, the, the old coaching adage, if each one does their job and we're better than their opponent, their direct opponent, then we'll win the game. In all my time, I never felt deferential to anybody. You went out and you gave your, your best. I never, and I don't think any of my teammates over the years went out and went, oh dear, I'm playing against so-and-so today. There's only one time we ever went back to bus, and that was at Easter Road. Willie Fernley was under a bit of pressure from the board and the fans. Willie had always, his attitude was attacking. In fact, Cavalier football was kind of what the papers hung on him. And by and large, that's what we did. And he decided to play at Easter Road, and he played me behind a back four. And he basically said to me before the game, just don't let them score. If you have to put it out, put it out. If you put it for a corner, put it for a corner. If you, we're going to have that defence, the defence is going to be solid. And I think it was a nil. I think it was a nil-nil. And he came in after the game and he basically said, well, that's showing that I can do it, but we'll not be doing that again. And that was the end of that. But he, he just, he was making a point that if he, he could shut up the shop and whatever. But the, that was the only time I would say that we, we, we changed other than going out to, to do well and play our best and focus on our own performances. I can't remember ever going out and saying, oh, we're playing against this or that and we need to uh, be careful and you need to watch what you're doing. We just went out to play. As I say, the legacy of me coming in, I always had that notion we were a big club. We were a big club, even although it was up and down the divisions. Even more so when you played down the division, he said we were much better than, I always felt we were much better than where we were. And that's how we approach games, to win. Every single player I've spoken to has said, well, yeah, we went in and we were expecting to get something because mm -hmm. you thought we were as good as them. And I wonder if that's a mentality possibly that separates a player at the top level from a supporter or I'm overthinking it. I sometimes think the English pundits and the English set-up, they, they are more, I've used that word before, deferential to the top four and all that. Oh, they're going to win. They'll win this game, etc., etc. I don't remember that in my time. I don't remember going and saying, oh, we'll need to watch. We're going to get thumped or we're going to take a doing today. I just don't remember that. Professional players have their own, by the very nature of it, they have their own distinct need to do well for their own self-pride. Plus, if you don't do well, you know you're going to either be left out of the team or you're going to take it from the fans, etc, etc, etc. So, 
professional players want to win. They have a self-belief or they wouldn't be professional players. You wouldn't have got there in the first place if you didn't have ability and then a belief in your ability. I've seen lots of players, maybe not so much pros, who were maybe more skillful, more able to do, but they didn't have that. Modern day footballers would call it mental toughness. We had it, but nobody called it mental toughness. Just had it. You, you, you were going to win. You went out to play well. And if I was playing against somebody that might be an international or whatever, well, I was going to show them that I was as good as them or better on the day. And that was it's just the, the approach I took. Another game I did nearly mention was we went to Tannadice and we were winning 4-0. So we were beating Dundee United 4-0 and I think that was about, around about the year where they had done particularly well in Europe. But it was certainly against all the, the Sturrocks and the Nerys and etc. But we were winning 4-0 at half-time and uh, <laughs> we hung on at 4-3, I have to say. But we're still winning 4-0. In fact, I've roasted Archie Knox a couple of times about that because I sometimes meet him now and uh, I think he denies that he was about Danny Dice at that time but hell, maybe he was. Kilmarnock to me and I think this is maybe personal to me that I came in when they were a huge club and I always had that legacy. It, maybe it's a bit trite but it must have been a huge, if not honour, but a sense of personal satisfaction to have been brought in to that club at that time? Oh, yeah. I mean, to, to, to be signing for Kilmarnock was signing for a big team. Uh, you were only signing for... I wasn't signing for Air United. <laughs> I was signing for a big team. A real team, <laughs> you know? So, yeah, they had just won the league. I went to train with them a year before I signed. So that was 67. So I was a schoolboy. I was still at school. And I went in to train in the summer and at holidays. And I was training with McGrory, BT, Murray, Jim McFadgen. Because of my, I was going to go into college, Jim McFadgen was a mentor for me because he was a PE teacher. Jim McFadgen played in a lot, a lot of games in that league winning side. I think he played more games than Matt Watson. He was a great guy for me. On and off the pitch, he... He helped me a great deal, both in my PE career and in the football. Going in at the holidays and so on, you became part of the full-time squad. They knew you, you got to know them. Andy King and Sandy McLaughlin leading the lapping of the track. Nobody was to pass them, not allowed. Uh, you know, all of these things. Fun memories about the way it was, but they were full-timers. You know, they played at the you know, league winners, Barnaboy, all that stuff. And I'm running at the back with a boys type thing, you know. So you're in, it was, it was great. And so you look back in that time as it was a really, it was a great time uh, for the club. Well, I was lucky enough to get a couple of substitute starts and so on and so forth. So, aye, it was, it was good. But, well, here's another story if you like it. You like stories, so here's another. I played against England. <laughs> I knew you would laugh. <laughs> It was a measure of how we were treated by Walter. Like, I was in training. It, it would be probably in the summer. And the English amateur football team were at Inverclyde. 
and you needed somebody to play against. So Walter took us all up. I was part of the squad because I was a full-timer. So the full-timers went up and I got a bit of a game. So there you go. On a wee silly bounce pitch at Inverclyde. But that's, I can always say, not anybody knows that story. So there you go. The point of it was that I went because I was part of the full-time squad. I wasn't treated differently. I was seen as one of the, you know, I was a boy, um, but the squad were going. And uh, so the bus was going up to Largs and uh, I got picked up en route and off we went. I was in and around real seasoned, top quality pros in a top club at that time. The scout for me was a guy, a very nice guy called Jimmy McIntosh, and I'm sure he was a North Ayrshire man, and I'm pretty sure he would be involved with Gordon Smith and Jim Stewart, because we're all Stevenston Solcoats co-winning, um, and I'm sure he would be part of that. He would be a big part of taking them, I think. So yeah, the scouting system, and Tosh was, he was around the club, he was a scout, he was one of the scouts, etc. So they did do that. They were quite happy going local, which was great for all of us. And when Kilmarnock come calling, or when they came calling for you, is part of your thought process, well, you've kind of alluded to it already about having confidence in your own ability, is your thought process, I'm joining a good, a very good squad, I might have to fight for my place, or is it Kilmarnock, I might have slightly more of a chance because it's still a smaller club, it's a smaller pool of players. What's the thought process in terms of, I'm, I'm joining a club, but I want to get football? Mm, I don't think I ever thought that way, Gordon. I, I think basically all I, they wanted me to sign, it was professional I, I football. I probably, like the old age, uncles, father, we, we were saying, you'll need to get something behind you. Football's very precarious, da, 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 da. so you will need a plan B type thing. So therefore, although I was happy, I wanted to play, I was always going to go to college to have that behind me. So I, I knew I was always going to be part-time for that foreseeable future. So signing on that basis meant I didn't have to think about going full-time. And then what? there was always, my parents were always keen that had some, it's the old-fashioned way that was with a lot of people have something behind you if the football doesn't work out. So, Kilmarnock City to that end, absolutely. So that was the thinking. And the thinking was you're signing for them. And it wasn't, I don't think it was, I'm going to be in the first team next week. It was, I'm signing for a professional club. I will go and I still believe that I would be a good player. So, that's that you'll get your chance type thing. It was always teaching, it was always PE teaching that was I always wanted to be a PE teacher from second year at school and I was lucky enough to get in. Craig Brown's dad gave me, interviewed me. <laughs> no, I didn't know Craig at the time, but Craig Brown's dad was the director of the PE college. No, I was lucky I got selected, so I went to college. And as I say, Jim McFadgen, just prior to going, was uh, a mentor. We were pre-season and they took me, I was getting set to go to college and he was at Stuart and High and he took me up to give me practice. That's what I'm saying, that's the kind of things he did. So he took me up 
and I got to watch some lessons and stuff like that. And then he said, right, we're going over to the primary. So over the primary, maybe primary six class, maybe 30 of them. He said, right, you can uh, start and I'll keep an order. And then a woman came in and said, Mr. McFadden, there's a phone call for you. And he said, right, okay, I'll just come. And he left me with the class. There was no phone call. He just, he just you know, again left me. <laughs> so that was Jim. But these are the kind of camaraderie, team build, not team bass, you know. That, these are the kind of things that he did that we all, so it was, you were part of the club and he made you feel part of it. There was no, I, I don't remember anybody ever being high, hierarchical about you're, you're just a boy, you know your place. I can't remember any of them being like that. He gave you a hard time if you did things wrong, but in the dressing room and stuff, you were just part of it. I'm not saying they were good to you, but they weren't bad to you. Does that make sense? It does. It does. As somebody who, who, who wasn't there and hasn't experienced that environment, it maybe comes a little bit of a surprise to me because the image that you would have is of tough characters and of high expectations. But what you're saying is the expectations were high, but it was based on a togetherness. Would that be the right way of putting it? It was. But they, these guys had all had success. They were all good players. They all knew. They had league, league championship medals to prove it. They were confident people. They could play. And they were, as I said, they were all good players. So that was, and Tracing Room's banter and so on is, well, it's legendary across the way. And, and, and it was good. There was lots of fun and games and you had to hold your own. But once you did that, you were accepted. Good times. Especially, and, and I say, maybe when I was younger, I felt it differently from when I got, became the senior, if you like. But when I was younger, in that environment, it was just very good. And I had the bonus of, I mean, college was three terms of, three, three terms of 30 weeks. So I was in this full time a lot. And that was hugely beneficial. I got chances that if I'd been full part time, if you know what I mean, if I'd been part time all the time, might not have came my way. Like, for example, going to Large with the squad and stuff like that. Going, I think I went to Ireland with them as well when I was about 18 or 19. With Jim McFadden acting as a mentor to you, with his background in teaching, and then with your background in teaching as well later, further down the line, I know that you famously taught Gordon Smith. How do you feel that your teaching background influenced the way that you were around the dressing room later on in your career? I think it has to, and it might have been particularly subconsciously, but I think you do treat people differently because you're working with people all the time. When you're a teacher, you're, that's your job, dealing with pupils, you're dealing with parents, etc., etc. And I think you try your best. And I think building up a, a, a rapport in the dressing room was really quite important. And, of course, with Gordon and Jim Stewart, I mean, we all used to meet up before the training for a while. We actually went to the coffee club in Comarnock before training. There was Gordon, Jim Stewart, I think Robbie was there. And then we headed off to Rugby Park for six o'clock. So there was that camaraderie in it. And I can't remember, gosh, you're testing me again. Can't remember any cliques, real cliques uh, at all. There was way back in the day, of course, there was the McLeans and John Gilman. They all came in the same car. So you're 
they're talking all the time and they're doing it in our back up the road. So that's understandable. Uh, um, but I don't think there was any real different factions at any time in the dress rooms that I can remember. But then maybe I was just oblivious to it being, <laughs> being daft. But there you go. As a qualified PE teacher, an educator, I would like to get your insight into the training at Kilmarnock in the era that you joined the club, because famously, a very, very fit team. But I think it's fair to say that Walter McRae, quite a tough taskmaster. Mm -hmm. so how, with your, with your hat as an educator on, how do you ensure that day after day, week after week, month after month, people keep that standard high when it's demanding work? I think, uh, let me think, if I stage that a wee bit, Walter was a, a thinker. I know a lot of folk really didn't like him. And in his latter days, when he became general manager, it, it was a different. But I only knew him. I was his first signing. So it was downhill after that for him. <laughs> I was his first signing. Um, and I came at the same time as Hugh Allen, believe it or not. But Walter went away to Mexico, to the World Cup, to get new techniques, new methods, etc. Et so he did think about the game. And an awful lot of the training was with the ball. Part-time regime was Tuesday night was a hard night, Wednesday night not so hard. But quite often with the ball. Pre-season training, absolutely brutal at times to get you fit. Now, modern technology might, in fact, that's one of the things they talk about, that modern science folk are saying that you can leave too much on the training ground. You shouldn't do as much as you, we used to do. But um, some of the, the, the pre-season training was harsh. But I was lucky as well because I was doing an awful lot of fitness work at college. A big bit of my college training was practical. So I was like four days a week in the gym. I, I mean, gymnastics, don't mean the weights. Um, but I, I was doing, well, we got taught how to do weight training. So we were doing football, rugby. So we were practical during the week. So I was enhancing that at night or vice versa. So I was I was really fit. At the end of second year of college, because it was a hard practical year, I was really, really, really fit. And that's probably why in midfield you could run all day. Was I quick? No. But I could run all day, I think. So that side of it was ever-present. So you had the cycles, pre-season, Da, 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 da. And the, the training was nearly, it was a, an unusual day when you didn't get a ball. Like, it, there were some days when you, it was around the track, the old Ash track at Rugby Park. So it was 220s and all that sort of stuff. And you did a lot. Alter, it was an awful lot of it was ball work. I've got, there's photographs of the pre-season training. It's a ball each. Everybody's got a ball. Now that's a way back. We're talking about as I say, 68, 69. But that was what he was like. But you can do lots of training drills that uh, are tiring with the ball that build you. It was different training from the way the SFE like Craig Brown and that do it with the cones and all that stuff. Different from that. Jim Clooney brought some of that in. But it wasn't like that. It was more in pairs, in threes, in fours, with a ball, etc. 
And of course, I went to college, the famous boxes, 3D1, 4D2, all of that stuff. So I was used to that. That was the Andy Roxburgh, Roy Small mentality, working in the boxes. Now, your debut came against St Mirren, 1970, yeah. 1st of yeah. January, 1970. But that season, looking back at the records, I think there was only half a dozen substitute appearances made. So when that call came to play in that game, mm -hmm. could you have been expecting it at all? Or was it, was it quite a surprise to be brought on as a substitute in a game? Um, well, I, don't, I think... Gosh, you're asking hard questions. Um, <laughs> okay. I think... I think substitutes mainly came on because somebody was injured. You didn't come on as a tactical um, because there's only one. And if you come on tactically and then somebody got injured, the team were left 10 man. So if you were going to be on at that stage, it was because somebody got injured. So, so, so that's the answer to that. You, I don't think I ever wanted somebody to get injured to get on. Later, when it became two and three, and now it's five, is it? They do tactical stuff. But back in the day when it was one, it was too risky. So you were only going to get on if somebody had to come off injured. As a young player, when you see your name as a substitute when the team list is out there, I'm not saying that you wouldn't be fully prepared for it, but mentally, it, it must be different to seeing your name on, in the first 11 because the chance to go on as a substitute was so infrequent. Yeah, but it's kind of incremental. So to get into the team, yeah, absolutely. But a stepping stone to that is getting on the bench. So if you get on the bench, that's a step up from going with the reserves. The team sheet, the team sheets went up at the end of training on a Friday. So the team sheet would go up. The game is at da 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 da. Squad to play. Let's say. Dundee at Dens Park, da 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 da, and it's listed. And the arrangements where you pick up train station, 1010 in uh, Dundee at Queen Street. So all the arrangements are there, and then the reserve team would go on another sheet, da 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 da. So everybody, when the sheet goes up, all the players go to see who's playing, who's going with the first team, and if there's any changes. Now, normally, the manager would, if he was going to drop an experience, he would probably, maybe not though, say to them before, so they're not seeing it just pinned up. But the sheet goes up and you see if your name's on the sheet. So for that particular St. Mum, oh, I'm on the sheet. So I would be, I, I would be delighted that I'm going with the first team squad. I think that's how the expression was, are you with the first team today? So you, are you going with the first team? Or... Whatever. Oh, you're going with reserves. <laughs> Not so good. But the, the sheet went up, everybody crowded around it, and if it was an away game, you then went and spoke to Hugh Allen or John Murdoch, the trainers, to say where you were picking the bus up or where you were meeting them, so that they knew, and if it was away, then they then asked you what you wanted for your pre-match meal. And so that you went to, if you went to Dundee, you went to a hotel, you knew they, they had ordered it and everybody got their pre-match meal. This might be a silly question, but did you always go for the same pre-match meal? Well, <laughs> that's another story. I mean, the folk would actually uh, laugh now 
because the dietitians and so on would tell you it was so wrong. But the big thing was steak. A lot of folks, you weren't allowed protein, you weren't allowed carbohydrates, so you weren't allowed chips. So you would say steak or chicken or scrambled egg or something like that. And 99% folk took steaks. One for you, a story, Roby, in the latter stages, always had cornflakes and peaches. You can ask him that, but he always had cornflakes and peaches for his pre-match meal. And he was probably right, but then his wife worked in the hospital, so she probably knew. Um, but in hindsight, steaks were the worst thing you could do, because the effect of the steak doesn't work to the Sunday, because it's protein. You, you should have been doing what all the athletes were up in, and it should have been pasta for a quick boost. But it used to be steaks. So you'd have 13 steaks all getting paraded out. Was there, was there any element of knowing that you maybe shouldn't be having the steak, but just fancying the steak, or was it just that the knowledge wasn't? Knowledge wasn't there. Folk thought pre-match meal steak was an option. That was a good option. Folk weren't doing it just to get the steak. They were they're doing it because they thought it was good for them. You know, that, the science wasn't there. And you're right to kind of read between the lines. I was because what I was kind of thinking is, like for example, when I used to, when we used to go with my, my granddad, and he would say, "Get anything off the menu," well, we'd always get the steak, <laughs> because that's the best thing on the menu. Why yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it, it wasn't for that reason. It was just that the folk thought it was good for you. Folk mm. thought it was a good pre-match meal to have, but it actually wasn't. It was the wrong thing. Scottish Cup success had eluded Kilmarnock for forty years and counting with several squads coming close. I asked George Maxwell to reflect on the club's latest near-miss in 1972. Playing at Hamden, it must have been a huge honour. You asked for a memorable match. I would probably say the series of matches that got us to then was really good. We played Alloa, and that was comfortable. I mean, that was, that, that was at Rugby Park, so that was comfortable. But then we had to go to Elgin, and they were, the, the, they were going to be the shock troops. You know, cup upsets, they were going to be the ones that were going to cause an upset. The whole town was up for it. Again, we, we beat them pretty well. That was a measure of how good a side we were. I mean, we beat them 4-1. I think I fell out with Brian Rodman that day. For some reason, we ended up shouting at each other. But that's huge. Not, not too unusual. But <laughs> um, And then, again... And the lead up, we get Wraith Rovers at Starks Park. And George Farm was the manager. And he'd been shooting his mouth off about what they were going to do to us at Kirkcaldy and all that sort of stuff. In fact, there was a wee bit of a melee in the tunnel after the game. <laughs> I'll tell you that one. And get in the tunnel, McGrory said, said something to Farm in the tunnel on the way in. And some like, well, that's shut you up type thing. And there's a Barney in the tunnel and we all get huckled into the dressing rooms and stuff like that. So my glory got his uh, get his piece in to George Farm that day. And that led us to playing the semi-final. At, uh, and that was a big occasion. Going back a stage, Billy Dixon was playing. Everywhere we'd been, we'd been away from home. We'd, so Dickie, Dickie said, oh, we have to stay away for the semi-final. <laughs> we have to get an away night. So we actually all stayed in Presswick, believe it or not, the night before. So I'm in the hotel in Presswick the night before, the day before, and I'm getting up for a nice leisurely breakfast, and, and my classes are being taken in school. So we had the day in Presswick, and then 
it was the police outriders and stuff, up to the McDonald's. Okay, we used to have a lot of pre-match meals. You came to the Eastwood Roundabout, there was a big McDonald's hotel and a few wee shops across the road. And we quite often had a pre-match meal in there. And that's where we met. The bus picked up the Glasgow boys there for away matches. So pre-match meal there. And then the police outriders picked the bus up. Well, that's quite an experience in itself where the police outriders take me to the game and stuff. So it was a big deal. It was a big deal. There must have been a toss-up for the home dressing room. And we got it. Now, this might not be fact, so you can check it. But we went in and we're all getting... You do the usual, da, 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 start to get ready. And Evan Williams was a Celtic goalie. So he just wandered into the home dressing room and started putting his jacket up on peg one goalie. So they were so used to playing at Hamden. So he came in and somebody, what are you doing? Type thing. <laughs> and he sat there, his reply was, oh, right enough. I wondered who was playing right back today. <laughs> but it was, and that was a starter for us really to say, they're so cocky, you know, so used to Hamden. And here are we with it. This is a huge new experience. It's a big deal and stuff like that. So that was, who do they think they are? And that takes me away back to what we said at the beginning. Who do they think they are? So we'll show them. We're no, you know, we're no the rookies in from the town. I, I played a pass through for Cookie and he scored. So I, I, sh- I, sh- I shoved one through for him. They got on top and I think that they won. But they, then again, they were think They would be playing to the top level in Europe at that stage. Commander fans would say the game turned because there was a crowd incident. The Celtic fans had got in behind the Commander fans in the North Terrace and type thing. And I think when we scored, missiles and stuff back in the day were thrown. So some would say that kind of altered the game. I can't remember if the game got stopped, but there was certainly something happened. As I say, they won 3-1. That cup run was a great run. Ross and myself and Eddie and Jimmy Cook. I think it was Jimmy Cook. Aye, we got our photographs taken on it. Because there was build-ups for the cup back in the day and we got our photographs taken because we'd scored in every round. So there was a big build-up for the game. The cup was a big thing. And that was so that whole experience. And again, I was quite young. So it meant a lot. You've answered every single question I was going to ask there on that cup. <laughs> cup okay. Every single question. And I was just about to say, you've modestly not said that you scored in every single round and then you just dropped no. it at the end there. <laughs> when you're the penalty taker, you've got an advantage. Do you feel just, just in passing, do, do you feel any, does the significance of the match add to the situation when you're taking it? Or is it just, you've just got to focus? Normally in the big matches, you're in the game. It just becomes, you just got to make sure you don't miss. That's what's going through your head. Make sure you don't miss. I would praise Walter again. I didn't miss very many. I think I missed two. And one when I was really quite young, it was at Firhill, and that made a difference. I think if I had scored that day, we might have not even get relegated. But I got phased by Ruffy. Ruffy phased me. I admit it to my chagrin. Uh, I should never. I was quite confident where I was, where I put them, whatever. And for some reason, because it was Alan Ruff, I changed what I would do. And the beggar saved it. But Walter was really good. And he said it didn't really make, you know, he stuck up for me. But that, if I had, probably if I, that would be, a, if I'd scored that one, who knows? 
history might have been changed, but it is what it is. So, yeah. Is that simply because at that stage you would have been the Scotland goalkeeper? He, he was the top on his day. He was one of the best. But, you know, on that 4 mil game at Tannadice, I took one. Somebody watched it in the telly and said, that wasn't a very good penalty. You made it look so easy. Uh, it rolled in. Hamish went the wrong way that day, so that was fine. We drew, and it was a penalty shootout to win the cup. Smithy was playing for Rangers. It was decided I would go last, because if there was going to be pressure, I would go last. So I was last. I saw, at the corner of my eye, Smithy was telling Peter McCloy where I would put it. So I had to play a poker face and not let on I'd seen him. Uh, and just continue, da 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 da. And then I promptly put it into the owner, the other corner, and we win the cup. And we were never invited back. And I thought, well done, Smithy. <laughs> and as you say, a, a tournament hastily cancelled after that. Well, we were we had we were in it because we had just won promotion. So I think it was Rangers, Brighton, us. There must have been a fourth. We beat Brighton, got and got into the final. And uh, it was pre-season. It was a pre-season sort of friend. What well, was it? It was called the Tenant Caledonian Cup. But uh, we won it. And I don't think they held it again. <laughs> when George Maxwell joined Kilmarnock in the late 1960s, he was becoming part of arguably the most consistent Scottish club of the decade. The next 10 years were to prove as challenging off the park as on it. I think it was, there were huge changes. One of the biggest things that happened was where the first team players, and I wasn't involved in that, but the first team players put in a round-robin request for transfers and so on because they were very unhappy and there was a huge dispute with the club. And some of the younger players, there's a boy from Stevenson, Cameron Evans, who was a wee bit older than me, get on the fringes and... He got roped into that. I was lucky enough to, to be out of it. So I was never asked to sign the round, the round robin and stuff like that. But there became quite a lot of bitterness. Uh, the club were, were being seen as being... They were never seen as great pairs, but even more so. The team was successful. The players weren't getting that. So there was this feeling of... Uh, I had bitterness really between, and, and it, it culminated in the most standing outside on Rugby Road one day, I think. And that wasn't good. And I think that was a bit of a, not quite a watershed, but that was the changes that was happening. And then it gradually wore away. I think I said to you before, was I aware of it at the time? I don't think I was. Because you just, if you're playing and you're picked and, and the team's going reasonably well, then that's good. The club will take, it'll move on and right across Scotland. The teams were going part-time. It wasn't unique. I mean, look at Dunfermline and how they really struggled now. I mean, but Dunfermline and Kilmarnock were like. Dunfermline was the Kilmarnock of the East and we were the Dunfermline of the West. If you like, look what happened to them, look what happened to Kilmarnock. More of the team was beginning to be kind of part-time. So it was a change. I'm just going to look in. By 73, a lot of the players 
were beginning to be part-time and then it started that the, the full-timers had to come in at night to, so that everybody trained together and then I think it kind of finished up. There was only about three or four of them left. So anybody who was leaving was never replaced by another full-timer. So it, it kind of withered on the vine. But I, mean, I, was, I knew you were going to ask about the, the, the differences and, and I think back about full-time training and how you were geared toward the week. Your week was geared toward a Saturday, Monday off, Tuesday quite hard, Wednesday quite hard, Thursday tapered down, Friday. Some Sometimes it, if things were going well, you'd hardly be in for any length of time. And it was just uh, almost in a wee game of football, or maybe a bath or get some treatment in a way. And yet, I, I keep instincts likes of Ian McCulloch, who, you know, he wasn't even doing that. <laughs> he was he was away working as a heating engineer or somebody else who had a, a harder job. And even to an extent, me, if I had maybe five classes, six classes that day, um, I'm on my feet all day working. I won't say hard, but working. And uh, so, you know, we were doing all of that. The, 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 the full-timers at all the other clubs were tapering down, maybe doing some uh, tactical stuff, maybe some throw-in practices, some set plays, that sort of stuff. Everything's geared up, maybe even talking about the opposition. But I'm telling the second years, hey, do this and that in a volleyball court. Ian McCullough's fixing a radiator. Um, that kind of thing in hindsight, but we never thought about that. Honestly, we never thought of that, that we were somehow lesser because we were part-time. We just thought we were as good as them. And we had a belief in our own ability, I suppose. That sounds hellish arrogant, but we just did. We knew we were going out to play that we would give energy in a day a game because there were some great players on a part-time basis. David Brogan, Ali Mocklin, Ian Jam. I could rhyme them off. Lots and lots of really good players who came and went and good and who came and went up, up um, you know. But we never thought if we were going away when we were part-time that somehow we were lesser. But in hindsight, the full-time, being a full-time footballer, where you're focused on the week toward the next game is must be better, must be better. I mean, I've been in at Rugby Park a couple of times when they were on the Astro and, I've, I've worked, and so they, you know, they're setting out plays and they're doing that and this. Well, very rarely did we, we did that a wee bit under Jim Clooney, but we didn't do it that much prior to because if you're part-time, you know, you're in at six, you don't want to keep the guys too late because they have to get home. So, and it's, in the winter time, you know, dark, cold, wet, sitting doing functions and plays, um, whereas at full time, maybe in, in the morning, when it's not, you can do them and you've got time to do them. That's the thing. You've got time, nothing's rushed. And, and, and I think that would be, for me, in hindsight, a difference. That these guys, when they were full time, when the club was full time, they were gearing up for Saturdays week on week. Not saying the part-timers weren't they, who were looking forward to their games, but it was it's it's it's, a, it's chopped and cheese. There's no doubt about it. It's chopped and cheese. 
you know, you're trying to do in two nights what they were doing in five days. You know, you didn't need to, but I, I went back in the afternoons, like when I was in full time, we would go back into shooting, play games, each take their turn as a goalie, and, but shooting drills, and nothing better than getting the nets on, never on the pitch, obviously. You know how they've got the portables, but a set of them up, loved it, loved it. And we would go back in the afternoon, John Murdoff would say, right, you guys get in, you've had enough. We were daft, no, we weren't daft, we were foot, footloose and fancy free. We had no commitments and stuff. Full-time football, finished at 12, back in the afternoon. And that in itself is an experience getting back when the club's quiet. Uh, nah, it's good. Enjoyed it. <laughs> back in the day. You've made very clear, as have other players, that the quality of the team couldn't be questioned. But was there an element of frustration that if we were full-time as a club, if it was a full-time setup, we could do even more? Or was it just, let's just enjoy the football? Footballers are quite selfish animals. And I think, I don't think folk would think like that because they might think, I might not have been there because I might not have gone full-time. Paul, Paul said, you know, Paul and I have talked about it before. He even swithered about full-time in England as against part-time plus a job here and the security of that. So I think we didn't say, oh, I wish we were full-time. I think we maybe on occasions said, well, there is a difference, but I don't think any of us really wished it. And it's back to the Scottish psyche of my parents saying, you know, you're full-time, no, you'll need to get something behind you. Get something behind you and then go full-time always have something to fall back on. And that was the mantra right across at that time. Always have something, you know, the famous one, you might get your leg broken. You've said some of the goals were penalties, but your goal-scoring record from, from midfield was very impressive. Uh, I don't know, you didn't always play in midfield. And I've heard you talking before about this idea that it came quite naturally to you, the, the ability to strike a ball. I know you've been asked this before, but I'd like a little bit of information, a little bit of context, please, on how it came about that it was decided that you had the most powerful shot in Scottish football, which is what happened. <laughs> right. Um, well, one of the nicest things that I've ever heard was John Burke, and he said that the best striker of the ball he ever saw was me, and he ever played with was me. Uh, now, when you get a fellow professional saying that, that'll live with me, because that was, for him to say that, and he being such a good player, meant a lot to me, meant an awful lot to me. So, how did that happen? Well, I think it happened in two ways. Um, I, we had a big, I, I live quite near the church, <laughs> and the manse was at the back of our, was opposite my back door type thing. And that was a great big man's wall, which was about 15 feet high. And I would go out there and just kick the ball against the wall. And there was a wee door in it, which was a gate. So that was my goals and my target. Because it's prehistoric, there was no cars. I'd, I could do it on the street and the, there'd be an odd car came around the corner. But I could kick the ball against the wall. And I did that quite a lot. And the other thing is, we played football 
in the playground all the time. You know, when I think right up from about primary, whatever, sometimes it was with a tennis ball, but we were playing football in the playground all the time. All the time. Uh, and I've not, I noticed when I went back, you know, when I went back when we teaching how that changed over the years. I mean, I remember our playground and there was a third years, because they were the big boys, they got to play across, they got to play straight. And we were only in first year, so we could put goals at right angles to each other and play in a kind of rectangle. Um, but we did that every play time. Every, I would run home at dinner time and grab some to get back to get into the game. Whereas now in schools, that doesn't happen. There's much more into it, and I don't mean that in a negative way, but boys are more likely to be standing around talking to lassies. And I don't mean that in a, in a, in a bad way. It's a different world. Um, back in the day, boys went away and played football, and that's what they did. Um, so there was all of that. And we used to go to up I stayed in Stevenston, and Auchin Harvey was the, the, the school pitch. You know, it, wasn't, it was the park. It was a huge park. It had, and we used to go there every day in the summer, and it would be something like 16 half time, 32 the winner. I mean, it was, and then we'd go back in the afternoon. So it was all of that added in. Built, did it build up your technique? Well, you didn't think it at the time, but it just built up that you were playing football or an awful lot. And so it developed from there. But I think I was just lucky that I did have good rhythm, good technique. So because of that, um, it was between, well, if Ian Jarden had been still at the club, he might have gone because he, he had a, a really strong shot as well. Um, but I was selected to go. The Daily Record had decided that Peter Lorimer had up until then been the hardest shot and whatever. And so they were going to run this competition. But to go to Fairhill, and they had the Daily Record had linked in with Glasgow Uni, and they were going to measure. So what happened was the Uni, I suppose you would call them boffins, came out and they had a laser beam across one line, and then they had a, about five feet in front of that, they had another laser beam. The idea was they struck the ball, burst the beam, that started it, it burst the other beam, or broke the beam, and that finished it. So the idea was you just lashed it into an empty net from the penalty spot. I think it was 18 yard line. And they had just a matter of feet in front of that, they had the two lasers. Like, if I show you that like that, there was one player from each of the Premier League teams, and I think we were bottom in the league at the time. We were, we were in the nether regions of the league, but we got a number of shots. And I always remember that uh, Jarden was there from Hearts. <laughs> Ian was there. And he was second, I think. And the United sent Hamish McAlpine, goalie, big strong kick. Matt McGee, Matt McGee from, he was at Aberdeen. So Matt McGee came, uh, Hamish, mm, who else? George McClusty, I think he was from. Celtic, Ali Dawson was from Rangers. I knew Ali. So we're just all knocking about and stuff. And we all got to show it. Well, Matt McGee wheeled one into the net and I thought, oh my goodness, this is going to be difficult. And then Ian did likewise and I came up and 
for whatever. I had decided I wasn't going to try and put any height on it. It's like a golf shot. If you hit it low, it goes further. <laughs> so I was kind of saying, right, okay, I'll keep it a wee bit low. And that was it. And they had Tommy Gemmel was manager at Dundee at the time. And of course, Cannonball Tommy and all that sort of stuff. So he presented it, Daily Record. Uh, and I got a big cup for it. That was an end of that, because again, it wasn't a Rangers or a Celtic <laughs> person that won it. What a pleasure to end Series 3 in the company of George Maxwell. My thanks to George for sharing his memories of the matches, the personalities and Kilmarnock the club across his 13 years of service. We will hear more from George later in the year in a 1969 European campaign special. This episode was recorded by video call in August 2020. As this latest series of Killy Histories draws to an end, some thanks are due. To Paul Clark, Ray Montgomery and the Kilmarnock FC Former Players Association for backing this project. To find out more about the association, visit kilmarnockfc.co.uk forward slash club. Thanks also to John Livingston, the Kilmarnock FC historian, for his statistical background and his enthusiasm for the project. Two resources I rely on are Killy, the Official History by David Ross and Killy Till I Die by Richard Cairns and Gordon Allison. Both are must-have references for those who are interested in the history of this great club. The theme music, Clear Progress, by scottholmesmusic.com is used under free Creative Commons licence. The Killy Histories Big Match series is a Right Half Communications production made in partnership with the Kilmarnock FC Former Players Association and the Killy Trust. Find out more by visiting www.righthalf.co.uk And don't forget to follow the series on Twitter, at Killy Histories. Planning is already underway for Series 4 in 2021, but if there is a player that you would like to hear from, drop us a line at killyhistories at gmail.com and we'll see what we can do. Killy Histories will be back at Christmas with some special episodes. I'm Gordon Gillen. See you next time. Working at the school on the Monday morning. And it's maybe slightly different in, in PE as opposed to maybe if you're the English teacher or the maths teacher. But if you've lost a game, or if you've won a game, though it's Mr. Maxwell now, or was it right, okay, we'll take a little bit. We won all our games. <laughs> no, it didn't happen that much. I, I, I was separate. I mean, I think the, the, people, the, the pupils did respect I very rarely got any, I never ever got anything disrespectful to me uh, in trying to be smart. But then again, if you've been living in the dressing room with 22 smart guys, a pupil's not going to be able to say something smart without a comeback. Uh, and maybe they knew that. You know, that was, that was a lesson you learned very quickly, that you had to have a thick skin and you had to be ready with a comeback.